TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host... Welcome back to the program, Mom Zev Brenner. I think it's been quite a while since we last had our guest on the air with us. Uh, he is Robert Abrams. He's a, born and raised in the Bronx, New York. He became a crusading attorney general of New York, 1979 to 1993. Uh, he battled the political machine and won historic victories, and he was president of the National Association of Attorney Generals. And he is written a new book called The Luckiest Guy in the World, My Journey in Politics, with a forward from the current Attorney General of New York, Letitia James. So, Bob, good to have you on our program again. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It, it reminds me of the old days. I mean, we've known each other for a long time. A long, long time. And you were on WOR Radio with your own show, Ask the Attorney General. And your wife, Diane, did a show for me on on my all-Jewish station up in Rockland County. So we have a future, we have a past that goes back a long time, including broadcasting. So it's good to have you back again. Do you miss being on the radio? Uh, I, I do. I mean, I started out when I was in the assembly. I had a radio show called Kaleidoscope on WEVD, uh, the old Jewish station. Uh, and I, know, I don't know if a lot of people realize what EVD stood for do you i know the the socialist eugene and i forget uh debs eugene v debs well you're right you were you were right on the money um he was the old uh socialist uh politician actually i think he ran for president of the united states as a socialist candidate one time um and then when i was both president of bronx i had a show on wnyc tv channel 31 uhf um, before cable, uh, the Urban Challenge. And then WOR gave me a couple of hours every Sunday afternoon, asked the Attorney General where people uh, could call in and ask questions. And uh, it, w- it was thrilling to be able to connect because WOR was, you know, such a powerful and important station. It reached a lot of people. And I, I found it uh, to be extremely valuable to connect with my constituents. So here you're back again. Does this mean that you're going to consider doing another weekly radio show? Is that possible? Uh Oh, I thought you were going to say, are you going to consider getting back into public office? Well, that was my next question. (laughs) The answer to that is very clear. No, no, not that I didn't love it. I mean, you know, the fact that, that, that the title of the book is The Luckiest Guy in the World is reflective of my attitude about about public life and public service. I mean, I spent 28 years. First of all, it's interesting. I never thought I would run for public office. Never in a million years. I mean, you know, I was, I was a kid growing up in the Bronx. My father ran a candy store. My mother worked at his side. Uh, and, and I often tell students when I speak on campuses or the attorney general invites me to speak to summer interns each year, I tell them that, Life is serendipitous. I use that word serendipitous. You cannot forecast what's going to happen. And clearly, that was the story of my life. I I never thought I would run for public office. And lo and behold, I had this chance to run for the assembly. If you want, we could talk more about that. It was a David and Goliath race. I ran against the machine. 
I challenged my local assemblyman, a 17-year incumbent, and it was the biggest upset uh, of the year. And from there, I went on and challenged the machine in running for borough president uh, in the Democratic primary. And I ran against the organization when I got the nomination for attorney general. Um, and I became the first Democrat elected attorney general in 40 years. Um, but And all of that gave me the chance to serve the public. 28 years. It was fantastic. And um, I felt very privileged. You know, I, I saw public... Kids today, you know, I'm concerned because kids today, uh, you know, they read the newspaper, they, 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 you know, you ask them, are, are, gonna, are you ever going to contemplate going into politics? You know, they, they, uh, and it's, and it's understandable because, um, you know, very often the press plays up those who betray the public trust, who cross the line, who don't do the right thing. But my experience was for 28 years that most people are good and decent when government and politics they're there for the right reason and certainly that was my philosophy is that so true today that people in government are there with the right philosophy and have good values is that still the case today well well i think i think most of them you know because the aberrations get the attention they draw the headlines you know, I, let me speak for myself. I mean, I felt, you know, when you're a, a teacher, it's a calling. When you're a doctor, it's a calling. Um, if you're a minister, a rabbi, it's a calling. Well, a public service, to be a public servant, it's a calling. It's an opportunity to serve. You know, in the Jewish tradition, there's the concept of tikkun olam. We're all on the earth in order to do good, to help repair the world, to make this place a better, to make this planet and this world a better place. And so that's what I saw as my credo, as my obligation. And I loved every minute of it. Minute of it. I had different responsibilities. I was a legislator helping to serve in the assembly, helping to pass laws. I then was the borough president of the Bronx and then served as attorney general for four years. So all this was prompted by your question and my answer that, no, no, I, I wouldn't run again. It's not because I didn't love what I did. I, I, I loved every second and minute of it. And I felt privileged to be able to do certain things that, that help people. But, you know, time moves on. I'm now in my 80s. Well, you could have been, listen, had you won the Senate, you know, you ran against Sal DeMato. He ran against you. Had you won, you might still still be in office today. Well. Well, that's true. You know, one door, every, you know, everything happens for the best. Uh, uh, you know, I won some, I lost some. That was a very tight race. Uh, I ran against a powerful incumbent who had a lot of money and a lot of advantages. And it, and it was a 1% race. It came very, very close. Um, one door closes and another door opens. So it, it enabled me to, uh, to, to, to practice law for 25 years and to uh, still be involved in public service. Uh, I did pro bono things over those years. Uh, did a lot of things to, uh, you know, to to still help reform our our process and system. Uh, I was on the board of the JDC, uh, a wonderful organization uh, that looks after the Jewish community all over the world. You know, I went to Russia and Siberia to see how the feeding programs for elderly Jews. Uh, uh, you know, was working uh, with the JDC. I worked, uh, I was on the board of the America-Israel Friendship League, where I was able to bring attorneys general to Israel 
every year, and I'm still doing that, even uh, even to this day. Uh, last year, we brought uh, 12 or 14 different attorneys general from around the country, and and uh, they they often don't know that much about the the Middle East and all the intricacies of uh, Israeli uh, life and politics. But by the time they leave, I believe most of them are Zionists, great admirers of the state of Israel. And they know a lot more about the diversity of the country, how it's truly the only democracy in the Middle East, how it provides opportunities for women, how uh, minorities within the society, uh, members of the Arab population, uh, they become lawyers, they become judges, they become doctors. Uh, and they, this now, this uh, at this moment in time, you know, they're part of the government. The Arab parties constitute the, uh, the ruling majority in Israel. So I loved every second that I did it. But Zev, uh, no more races. No more, no more races. But I, but I asked about radio. Is there a radio show in your future? That you can do. That's not a race. That's a, a talk show. Is that possibility in your future? Well, uh, you know, uh, if you're making me an offer, uh, tell me more about it. We'll see. It, I will it, talk. And I'll talk to your agent, Diane. I'm going to get to how you met her in just a few moments. But, you know, you were attorney general, and it was, politics was a different kind of politics, even though you had, there were nasty races, obviously. So I was just curious to get your take. Andy Cuomo has been under trouble for months. He finally said, I'm leaving. He's announced that he's resigning. Um, so what do you think about the whole process that he held on to long? And what do you think about the role of Tish James in getting this to happen? Because she seemed meticulous, took her time, and came out to report when she needed to, not under any pressure. Well, she did an excellent job. Um, she stood her ground when, when Cuomo tried to say that she was not the one to do the report. Um, she said, no, 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 governor, under the executive law, it's the attorney general's responsibility and solely my responsibility. And he backed down and, uh, and, and she did the report and um, hired uh, good outside people, a former United States attorney, another experienced lawyer to do the investigations. They were thorough. Uh, they interviewed hundreds of people. They had thousands of documents presented. And uh, the report was 165 uh, so pages long, uh, which was highly acclaimed by those who, who reviewed it, editorial boards throughout the state and throughout the country. And, um, um, and, and, it, and it called it as it is. Uh, she showed tremendous independence in not punting and uh, revealing all of the facts. And the facts were so compelling that it put uh, the pressure on the governor uh, to do the inescapable. I mean, now, I was just curious, because you were Attorney General, she didn't come up with criminal charges, came out with the results of her finding. Was the, Should she have gone criminally or as far as going after the governor? Well, she now, did not. She does not. The Attorney General does not have the power to, uh, to, to prefer criminal charges in this kind of a case. Her responsibility was to issue a report to the public uh, documenting all of the facts and in fact, now there are criminal investigations based upon that report. Uh, there are at least five separate county district attorneys um, who are investigating the case criminally. So um, she deserves a lot of credit uh, for doing the right thing and doing a professional and competent job. And uh, it's tragic and unfortunate that we see a circumstance with the governor, you know, again, 
abused uh, powers and sensitive responsibilities. Um, and obviously, it's an important issue that uh, that that women be able to uh, to be able to count on on a justice system and to be heard and to try to make sure that they're not preyed upon as unfortunately has been the case for too many years. Now, she's also been mentioned as somebody who has great political skills and could possibly be a governor of New York. In fact, uh, there is speculation that she might be one of those people running. I suspect there might be a crowded field of Democrats running for governor. Certainly, it's a crowded Republican field as of right now. So um, I can, can you see that happening? Well, certainly uh, she is you know, a, a, a legitimate candidate. Whether or not she wants to do that, I don't know. Uh, she may want to run for re-election because this, uh, the post of attorney general is, is so important, and she has continued to, to the tradition of it being a frontline protector for people. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, she might well be a legitimate, strong contender uh, because she has demonstrated, you know, her capacity for leadership, independence, and integrity. Our guest is Robert Abrams. He's a former attorney general of New York from 1979 to 1993. He's been involved in many different races. He was president of the National Association of Attorney Generals. He was involved in Soviet Jury, a strong supporter of Israel. But right now he's joined a new club, a book author. His new book is called The Luckiest Guy in the World, My Journey in Politics. We're going to be right back. Don't go away. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk Line Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the TalkLine network and TalkLine's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at TalkLineNetwork.com. You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom. Zev Brenner. We're very pleased that Robert Abrams joins us again, a former New York Attorney General from 1979 to 1993. He had a lot of different offices that he held, including the Assembly. He's a past president of the National Association of Attorney Generals, and uh, he has been very active in the Soviet jury movement, strong supporter of Israel, and his latest book, he's former talk show host on WOR Radio and WNYC, other stations. His new book is called The Luckiest Guy in the World, My Journey in Politics. You have a fascinating career, but something that intrigued me is Rabbi Gilbert Clapman, Orthodox rabbi, who you were friendly with, and he kept badgering you time and time again. You pretty much ignored him. What did he badger you about, and what happened? <laughs> well, um I was very active in the, in the Soviet jury movement. I was the chairman of the Greater New York Conference on Soviet Jury. We, uh, we ran the biggest demonstration in the world every year. Anywhere from 150 to 250,000 people would gather in Hammarskjöld Plaza on behalf of, uh, of Soviet Jews, right opposite the United Nations building. And uh, our march and demonstration and rally would draw attention 
uh, would be on the front pages of the New York Times and all the newspapers, not only in New York, but across the country and across the globe and on the electronic media as well. So Rabbi Klaberman, he, he was a leader of the Soviet Jewry movement on the national level. And every time I'd go to a rally, he'd, say, he'd give me the name of this young woman whose parents were members of his congregation, Beth Sholem and Lawrence which is an Orthodox congregation, and you grew up in a non-Orthodox uh, synagogue, correct? No, I, I mean, my I was not, show, my, my parents were not religious. My father and mother ran a luncheonette, um, and, uh, you know, they'd go to shul on, on, on the high holidays. Um, I, I went to Cheder. Um, I had a bar mitzvah. I gave my speech in Yiddish, you know, and I go on and on and on. That's terrific. I'm I'm very impressed. You know, I interviewed Ed Asner recently, and he grew up Orthodox, and he gave his speech, and he couldn't remember remember anything from his bar mitzvah. Then finally he said, Baruch Hu. That was about it. Anyway, go ahead. So, so, uh, but, but we, we're not, we were not religious. My mother didn't keep a kosher home. You know, look, we did the Pesach, we did Passover, the high holidays, but, but we were not uh, observant and uh, proud to be Jewish. My father would close the store on the holidays. We'd buy seats. I went to a uh, little Stiebel, Cheder, Roosevelt Synagogue and, on Wallace Avenue in Pelham Parkway in the Bronx. So, um, but Rabbi Kaverman told me that, you know, he knows this young woman. She's very attractive. She's very accomplished. She went to Columbia Law School. Uh, she comes from a wonderful family. We have so much in common. You should call her up. And I was busy. I was the borough president of the Bronx. I was 36 years old. I, I, I still hadn't been married. And, uh, uh, and I, I didn't call her up. And uh, I go to another rally and say, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since I saw you. you. Why don't you call her up? And this went on for months. And then finally, my secretary walked in one day and she said, she called me Mr. President. Because I was the borough president of Bronx and she was a, a civil servant, Peggy Rodriguez. Uh, she was an Irish woman married to a Spaniard. And uh, I called her my Jewish mother. So she, she knew everything that was going on in my life. She opens the door and she says, Mr. President, it's that rabbi. He's on the phone again. Why don't you just call her up? Take an hour of your time. Call her up. Who knows what might happen? But, and at the same time, you'd get him off, off your back. So I took Peggy's advice. I, I, I took the call from Rabbi Kaufman. I made the pledge. I said, all right, Rabbi, you're right. You're right. I'm, I'm going to call her up. I've been derelict. And we met. And we had a, you know, this was the blind date. And wouldn't you know that within a year we were engaged and we were married. And we've been married now for almost 47 years. And she brought me along. She made, I made a commitment to her that I'd be home for every Shabbos, which I have honored for almost uh, all that half century. In fact, when you, so after you got married, didn't some, weren't you in a, some event on Friday where your colleague said, hey, it's going to be sundown soon. You better get home. Well, Zev, it shows that you read the book because uh, that was a little vignette. I was the borough president of the Bronx, and I had this meeting on a Friday afternoon, and the meeting happened to be with black and Hispanic leaders uh, from the community. And um, this guy leans over to me and says, uh, President, don't we have to conclude this meeting? It's getting close to sundown. 
<laughs> and I looked at him and smiled. And I said, I shook my head, yes. And the meeting ended in a few minutes. And he came over to me and explained. He said, look, I remember when you got married, it was reported in the local Bronx newspapers that you go home for Friday night, you know, to begin for Shabbos and Shabbos services. And, and so um, it, 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 it not only was good for me, and I told my wife, you know, look, I'll do it. But I have a problem because up until then, I wasn't home on, on, on Friday night. And I would get these invitations to go to dinners, various civic organizations. And, you know, whether it was the Little League or block associations or other organizations would have dinners and have events. And I was an insurgent. And the way I, I could beat the machine is by doing good work, building up a strong record and being available to community groups and, and being connected with them, having them see me and me see them and uh, become, uh, you know, friendly with one another. And so I told Diane, I said, gee whiz, you know, this Friday night commitment is going to hurt me politically. But I said, I would do it. I would do it. Uh, and she was absolutely right that it was important for the family. It became the anchor for the development and raising of our two daughters. Who now who made Aliyah and now live in Jerusalem and have given me eight grandchildren, and it did not hurt me politically. Indeed, just like that guy uh, leaned over and told me, uh, he 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 thought he did it with respect. He did it out of respect. Um, in fact, I remember Joe Lieberman, my good friend, who served with me as the Attorney General of Connecticut. He told me. Um, uh, Connecticut is a heavily Catholic state, uh, mostly not Jewish, and he was observant. He was Shomer Shabbos, and he felt it never hurt him that people of other faiths respected him uh, for honoring his own faith, the tenets of his own faith. So, so it, it was the right thing to do. She brought me along. We got married in the Bronx Botanical Gardens at the Snuff Mill along the banks of the Bronx River. And, um, you know, my, my, my two daughters, they're very accomplished. One of them, Rachel, uh, has a Ph.D. She went to Columbia. She got an M.A. from Hebe University, a Ph.D. from Bar-Ilan. Uh, my younger daughter uh, went to Columbia as well. And, and, and uh, she went to NYU Law School, was on the Law Review, graduated magna cum laude. She worked for Paul Weiss Rifkin. She clerked for a federal judge, and she's now practicing law in Jerusalem as well as uh, raising her three kids. So these are two wonderful children who have given us eight uh, fantastic grandchildren, and their husbands are equally accomplished. Uh, uh, Rachel's husband, Rabbi Ian Pear. Sure, has, created, has a synagogue in Jerusalem. Fantastic synagogue. It's called Shir Hadash. He and Rachel helped uh, create it or created it. It's not only a synagogue, it's, uh, it's uh, the... Uh, it's, it's, it runs a nursery school that is the, in most, it's the, it's the finest nursery school in Jerusalem. It's almost like trying to get into the 92nd Street Y nursery school. The list is, uh, is so long. Uh, there's a waiting list and, uh, people, uh, love the program. And he runs an educational institute. They just, uh, uh, merged with a girl's seminary, Amudim, 25, uh, uh, young women who graduate from high school, spending the gap year in Israel, um, studying together, um, and they have prominent speakers. They have a dafyomi of 40 people every wow, morning. Very nice. Uh, and they've done a great job. They've become an anchor to the Anglo community in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they built a new building. 
uh, right at the edge of uh, the German colony and, uh, and Calvia. Um, and uh, they're so respected. We have such uh, admiration for all the good that they're doing in Jerusalem. So um, I, th this in part is why I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I had a chance to serve the public, to do exciting and important things. And because I've had a wonderful wife and a terrific family. So uh, uh, those are the ingredients for, for good luck. Which, exactly. Now, you mentioned a judge. Didn't somebody want to get you out of politics by offering you a judgeship because you were popular and they felt you were threat they were threatened by you? So they said, "Hey, we're going to make you a judge," and you said, "No." <laughs> what happened? Well, that was another story in the book. Um, uh, my wife and I uh, were on Shelter Island. We were, in fact, sharing a cottage with the, with the best man at our wedding, uh, Renee Plessner, a classmate and friend of mine from Columbia. And uh, one day, Diane sticks her head out of the, uh, the, the doorway uh, and says, uh, you got a phone call, phone call. We were, Renee and I were sitting on Adirondack chairs uh, right at the water's edge. And, and she says, you got a phone call. So I ran uh, to the cottage and, and she says, it's Pat Cunningham. Pat Cunningham? Why is he calling me? He was my arch enemy. Right, he didn't get along at all. Right, that's what... He, he was the boss of the Bronx, and I was the, the insurgent, the reformer, you know, the guy running against the, the organization. You run against and, the machine. Uh, he was the head of the machine, and I was the guy always challenging the machine. So uh, I, I, get, I pick up the phone, and he says, says Robert, Robert, it's Pat Cunningham. I said, hi, Pat, how are you? First of all, he keeps calling me Robert. You know, no one calls me Robert. So, um, so he That was said, the first clue. <laughs> What's that? That was the first clue that something was amiss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, it's Pat Cunningham. Why is he calling me Robert? And he says, you know what's coming up in two weeks? And I stopped for a moment, and I said, um, uh, no, no, what's coming up? He says, the judicial convention. I said, oh, okay. The judicial convention. He says, Robert, how would you like to be a Supreme Court judge? I said, Pat, that's very gracious of you, but uh, no, nah, it's not for me. Uh, you know, I, I ran for attorney general. I ran, I won the primary. I lost the race to Louis Lefkowitz, who was an incumbent. I, I, I went back to being borough president of Bronx, and my intention was to run for attorney general again in, in three years. He's, I said, so it's not for me. I'm 31 years old, and uh, uh, or at that time, maybe I was uh, 35 years old. I said, it's too sedentary. He said, Robert, a Supreme Court justice, 14-year term. People die for a nomination. I'm offering you a nomination to be a Supreme Court justice. I said, Pat, look, again, I appreciate it, but it's not for me. And then he says, he says, your wife, your wife, she's a lawyer, isn't she? I said, yeah. In fact, she graduated Columbia Law School. He said, how about two judgeships? <laughs> and I said, Pat, Pat, oh, you're most gracious, but no, it's not for us. And uh, even though we turned down two Supreme Court judgeships, I've never regretted it because uh, life went on and I became the attorney general. And you never, you never regretted not becoming Supreme Court judge or Diane? No, no, no. And because it gave me the chance to be attorney general. And, and Zeb, we haven't talked too much about that. You know, I, I reformed the office. 
I, I tried to expand that role of attorney general. It existed for 200 years. It was a backwater. It didn't do very much. It was defensive. It only defended the state. And I helped make the office a more affirmative office, uh, not only defending the state, but launching investigations and starting lawsuits to protect consumers, to protect the quality of the environment, to protect people's civil rights, uh, to enforce antitrust laws. I brought back millions of dollars into the wallets and pocketbooks of ordinary citizens of New York based upon what the attorney general did. And then I began to reach out when I was president of the National Association of Attorneys General. I brought together coalitions. I reached out to Republicans uh, as well as Democrats, to attorneys general of small states as well as large and middle-sized states from the South, from the North, from the East. It didn't matter whether they were conservative or liberal. I said, let's work together to bring lawsuits to protect our people. And we did joint investigations and joint prosecutions. And even when I left the office, that legacy continued. So the tobacco case, for example, was brought by 46 attorneys general. And it culminated in an agreement with the tobacco industry because they were not revealing and disclosing to the public, you know, how cigarettes can cause cancer, how nicotine was addictive. And we returned, or the attorneys general at that point, got the cigarette industry, the tobacco industry, to give $220 billion to the state's treasuries because uh, they had to spend money uh, on, 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 on hospitals, in hospitals and on health care for people who got sick as a result of the tobacco industry. And in addition, it reformed the practices, the way they advertise cigarettes and they have they had to do warnings and all kinds of things. So, so the attorneys and the attorneys general are doing that in the opioid crisis now, and they're doing it. Uh, you know, the, when, when Trump came into office in my day it was when Reagan came into office. They were rolling back all of the protections that were enacted into law. They put the consumer watchdog to sleep, and so it. it, it the public relied upon the states, the state attorneys general, to do. The law enforcement. So you were an activist attorney general before we break. So right now, a lot of stuff is political. So would you say that's the case in investigating former President Donald Trump, which the attorney general's office is now doing? Yeah, well, first of all, so, so attorneys general did a lot together and they worked uh, uniformly today. You know, the atmosphere is so toxic that it's become a, a little more political. Uh, there's a Democratic Attorney General's Association, a Republican Attorney's General's Association, in addition to the National Association of Attorneys General. Um, so it, it's become a little more political. But the point is, here in New York, look, it's, it's not just the AG that has some investigations going against uh, Donald Trump. It's the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which, uh, uh, you know, has a terrific reputation as being independent and Cy Vance. Uh, not running for re-election, you know, launch that investigation. And uh, I think we are going to hear, you know, coming out of the New York County Attorney uh, District Attorney's Office, uh, some action uh, before Cy Vance leaves on December 31st. Our guest is Robert, I should call him Bob Abrams, because only the political hacks that he doesn't like calls him <laughs> Robert Abrams, even though his title in the book says Robert. Why does it say Bob Abrams on the title, uh, Bob? Why does it say well, Robert Abrams? 
(laughs) (laughs) But he's a former attorney general, and as you heard, he's a crusading one. And he actually has a building named after the Justice Building in Albany was renamed the Robert Abrams Building for Law and Justice. I'm going to petition if it should be changed to Bob Abrams Building. Anyway, (laughs) his book is called The Luckiest Guy in the World, My Journey in Politics. We're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned. You're listening to the TalkLine Network. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Are you interested in hosting your own radio show and podcast, or perhaps a TV program? TalkLine Network can help you get on the air from one hour weekly to 24 hours a day. Ideal for ethnic, foreign language, medical, business, and religious broadcasting. We also have full-time radio stations for lease, as well as FM HD channels. For more information, please call 212-769-1925. That's 212-769-1925. Or email zevbrenner at gmail.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom Zev Brenner. Our guest is the luckiest guy in the world. That's the name of his book, My Journey in Politics. Bob Abrams, a former New York Attorney General. He has a building named after him in Albany, New York, and he's a former president of the National Association of Attorney Generals. You did a lot of activist investigations. Some of the people are still around and active. I'm looking at Tawana Brawley, Al Sharpton. You did an investigation. Tell us about that. Does that have any implications for today? Okay, well, that was uh, a very controversial case. Governor Cuomo appointed me to be a special prosecutor. That was Mario Cuomo. Governor Mario Cuomo, correct. As opposed Uh, to the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Okay, go ahead. Correct, correct. And um, um, a a black teenage uh, young woman, uh, Tawana Brawley, made some very serious public accusations. She said she was abducted by a group of white men, four to six men, some of whom were attached to law enforcement. She was held against her will for four days in the woods, and she was violated and raped. And uh, obviously, and, and, and when she was found, she was found in a plastic a garbage bag along the side of a road with racial epithets written on her body and uh, dog feces on, uh, in her hair. Um, it was the ugliest set of facts and circumstances. And I remember before I even knew that I would ever come near that case, uh, reading about it in the newspaper. And when I read it, I said to my wife, I said, Diane, listen to this story. How could this have happened in New York? Oh, my God. And wouldn't you know that a few months later, Uh, I was designated the special prosecutor, and I had to investigate the case. And what happened was um, she was represented by some advisors, uh, Al Sharpton and uh, a couple of lawyers. Lester Madox, I believe, yes. Uh What's that, Seth? Madox, I believe his last name was. Yeah, uh, Alton Maddox Maddox, and, uh, and C. Vernon Mason. They were the two lawyers and Reverend Sharpton, and they were the advisors to the family and to Tawana Brawley, and they told her not to cooperate, not to cooperate with the investigation because you couldn't trust the criminal justice system. It was a racist system, 
And uh, so we had no cooperation from her. Uh, and yet, uh, incredibly, as a result of a, a grand jury investigation and it's real thorough and independent fact-finding, we were able to demonstrate that this was a lie. It was a hoax. It was a bogus story. Uh, the rape kit at the, at, at the hospital when she was taken in by the emergency, uh, the ENT people who took her to the local hospital, the, there was no evidence of any trauma, no evidence of any rape, no injury to her body. Uh, there was, uh, the, you know, she said she was, it was, uh, it was over Thanksgiving in November. She was held out against her will in the woods for four days. There was no sign of malnutrition. There was no sign of uh, being out in the cold. And, and she was found right adjacent to an, uh, an apartment that our family lived in uh, that was abandoned a few months before then because uh, the landlord threw them out because they, they were behind in their rent. And so it was demonstrated that she was staying in that apartment during the four days, and she put the racial epithet, she wrote them herself on her own body, and we were able to demonstrate that this was a bogus story. Um, now, at the same time, I say in the book, this, just because she lied in this case doesn't mean that, that when a person, when a woman comes forward and accuses somebody of rape or wrongdoing means that it's a, it's a hoax. Every case stands on its own facts, and I and I think we saw that late, just recently in the in the governor's case when you got eleven women filing complaints, and even though the governor denies that he, he didn't do anything about it or he had no, he, he never violated any of them, when you have eleven separate women, separate instances with all kinds of evidence, you know. Um, uh, indicating that this did happen with contemporaneous notes and contemporaneous conversations and complaints to friends, uh, then obviously you have a different set of circumstances and a different set of facts. So, but, but, the, so, but there was somebody's life was almost ruined in the Tawana Brawley situation. That's right. Well, they, so, they, they, they everybody, made everybody believed Everybody believed Tawana Brawley, at least initially. That's right. And, and, and as did I. I mean, I thought these were serious allegations and charges. And the more we went and, and investigated, the more holes we saw in her story. And she made false allegations against a guy named Stephen Pagonis, who was an assistant district attorney in Dutchess County. He later sued her and he got a judgment against. Uh, he later sued uh, her and he sued Al Sharpton. Um, and judgments were obtained against both of them. Um, so, uh, and then I, they, I, they I, wonder if, I wonder if you ever collected any of the judgments. Well, uh, they, they, they were being paid, believe it or not. Sharpton, oh, okay. Sharpton went ahead and, uh, he didn't reach into his own pocket to pay for it. He got others to raise the money for him. Um, he said that he was, uh, he didn't have the resources to pay for it. And of course, Al Sharpton behaved terribly during the course of that case. I later brought charges against the two lawyers. And I uh, pointed the finger of gross irresponsibility on the part of Al Sharpton. But they, were they? Did they? Did they? They didn't serve any jail time. Were they? This, were the lawyers disbarred? Uh, they one was uh, suspended and disbarred, and the other didn't respond, and he hasn't been able to practice law since. Tawana Brawley, did she go to jail or have any consequences for manipulating and damaging and using the criminal, using the justice system against an innocent individual? 
No, she just had those civil uh, damage charges levied against her, and uh, you know, uh, and 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 I, I, I think she paid all of them, or is still in the course of paying them off. Were you surprised that Al Sharpton was able to resurrect himself? And today, everybody from the president to even the current governor, the new governor's race, everybody's going to Al Sharpton. They think he may run or to get his blessing. So he certainly was able to rehabilitate himself after the Twana Brawley fiasco. Well, he was. And to his credit, he has done some good things, you know, on a, on a, on a lot of cases that uh, uh, were horrible in terms of, um, wrongdoing by police against uh, um, uh, against uh, those who were incarcerated, who were you know arrested by police, um, uh, but at the same time he never really has fessed up about uh, the irresponsible actions and charges that he made uh, during the Tawana Broly case. Did you have any interaction with him after the Tawana Broly affair? Well, you know, I, I would see him from time to time. I try to. Act civilly, we said hello, but that's about the extent of it. Okay, but he hasn't tried to to get you involved in any of his campaigns. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, actually, I mean, you know, uh, we were contestants. Uh, uh, he he ran in that Senate race in the primary. Uh, it was a very tough primary. It was Geraldine Ferraro. It was Liz Holtzman and Al D'Amato, and uh, I eked out a victory uh, to to win the Democratic nomination. Now. We're almost out of time, but I know that uh, you ran for Senate, and Al D'Amato ran. Uh, you know, and he and he won. Were you? Uh, did it change your feelings about politics? It was a very strong and dirty race. Well, it was a nasty contest, and a lot of uh, things were said that were not true. Uh, but look, life life goes on. Uh, as I said before, uh, when one door closes, another, another door opens. It gave me the chance to uh, to get into the uh, practice of law and at the same time to um, to continue to do pro bono things. You know, I was involved in uh, a lot of efforts to bring the Jewish community and the LDS community, the Mormon community closer together. I resolved a, a dispute that existed. Yeah, because just how one should know is that they, the Mormons took dead Jews and registered them, baptized them in the Mormon church, and that was a big, big thing which Jews were very upset about, and you were able to solve that problem right it, it was called proxy baptism um uh you know they believe that when a person dies the soul lives on and they gave uh, an opportunity for the soul to make a choice uh, it was not a, a forced uh, uh, change or you don't even know if they would say they called it a, a an opportunity for the soul to make a choice as to whether or not they wanted to be baptized into uh, their own religion so and, and Ernie Michel, who, who uh, survived the Holocaust, who was in Auschwitz and lost family members, was a leader of Holocaust survivors, very upset about all that. And um, I worked with Ernie, and we, we, we uh, worked on a joint statement together, bringing the two groups together. They made an exception that they would never offer the names of any victim of the Holocaust for this proxy um, uh, baptism uh, opportunity for the souls, and uh, and and after that, there began to be uh, very close and warm uh, opportunities for working together and relationships between the two groups. In fact, I had one of the elders of the church come to a Friday night Shabbos meal in my home. Uh, he talked about it to the 
a Mormon community worldwide, what an exciting opportunity it was, and all kinds of positive good things. I brought them to Israel. Uh, they they met with um, uh, the prime minister. They met with the mayor of Jerusalem that later reached uh, Yad Vashem. It was the 175th anniversary of Orson Hyde, uh, an early member of the church who came to Mount Scopus and declared that this was the land of the Jewish people and that Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt. So it was a, a real uh, a, a amazing thing because that's what happened some hundred years later. Um, the Jewish people, uh, Israel has become the ingathering of the Jewish people. Jerusalem has been rebuilt as the capital of the Jewish state. And uh, the Mormons are very, very supportive uh, of the state of Israel. And I brought them to the Mormon Center, uh, which is right on Mount Scopus, overlooking the old city. And we had a very moving and impressive ceremony there to commemorate Orson Hyde's trip to Jerusalem and uh, uh, the fact that uh, his prayer, uh, you know, uh, came to fruition in terms of uh, where Israel is today and the rebuilding of, of the city of Jerusalem and the country itself. Bob Abrams, I want to thank you for joining us. May I recommend your book, The Luckiest Guy in the World, My Journey in Politics. If it gets to be made into a motion picture, who do you want them? To, who do you want to play Bob Abrams? <laughs> Zeb, I'll call on you. To, to <laughs> but I'm not an actor. I'm a talk show host. I'm not an actor. You're a radio and television <laughs> host, and now's the time to get on the screen. Let me just say one thing, too. If people buy the book, whether at, the, at their local bookstore uh, or on Amazon, understand one thing. I I am not receiving, I am not keeping any of the possible royalties or benefits or profits of this book. They're going to charitable causes. In fact, at my son-in-law's synagogue, we had a book event, um, and all the proceeds went to Shir Hadash. Um, uh, the, the book has been widely reviewed by the Jerusalem Post, by the New York Law Journal. It's got wonderful uh, uh, wonderful reviews. So if people uh, buy it, understand uh, uh, the, the, the proceeds are going to good charitable causes. The New York State uh, Archives is one of the other charitable benefit of, uh, causes. Daniel's Music Foundation, which uh, gives an opportunity for those who um, have issues uh, to, 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 have, to, to be able to get back into society as a result of working with those who, uh, through music, music is a great medium and forum uh, for all people, and especially those with disabilities. So, um, you know, people hopefully will be uh, liking the book. And, and, and well, I certainly, I certainly did, and I enjoyed it, and I recommend people should get the book. The Luckiest Guy in the World, former Attorney General Bob Abrams. Thank you for being here with us. Regards to Diane. Thank you. Thanks, sir. If people want to know more about the book, they can go to the website, luckiestguyintheworldbobabrams.com. Oh, it's www.luckiestguyintheworldbobabrams.com. Luckiest Guy in the World, Bob Abrams, thank you for joining us. Look forward to having you back again. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to TalkLine Communications Network, America's leading Jewish radio and TV network since 1981. For continuous, nonstop Jewish broadcasting, please go right now online to TalkLineCommunications.com. 
For more information on all of TalkLine's Jewish radio and TV shows, please call 212-769-1925 or email info at TalkLineCommunications.com. Our 24-hour day listen line is 605-562-5174. That's 24-hour day listen line, 605-562-5174. Thank you for listening. Talk Line Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.